Welcome back to the Beyond a Declaration, What Rights Can Do podcast dedicated to humanizing and not just politicizing human rights. Today, we're talking about work, 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 work. Uh, did you know that at this very moment, there are about 3.3 billion people, including myself, who are engaged in work? It seems like from the moment we are born, we are set on a journey to prepare us for a life of work in order to take care of ourselves, to survive, and also to self-actualize by making use of our talents and our strengths and to contribute to the world. Many of us are lucky enough to grow up to choose the work we want to do, to actually do that work. And some of us are forced by circumstances to take on work that we do not want, uh, and sometimes for minimal reward. And many others uh, are cannot find work, you know, are struggling to find work. And some of us find ourselves out of work at different points in time. What does this all mean in light of what is declared to be a universal human right, the right to work? This right is especially critical at this moment when we are faced with unprecedented levels of unemployment that has devastating socioeconomic and political effects, and dare I say, psychological effects. And to help me unpack this very sensitive right are my guests, Shami Suri Anarian, the Chief Impact Officer at Harambe Youth Employment Accelerator. And I have to say, I have to declare that I've said it many times in other forums that I feel like Harambe is doing the Lord's work uh, in the space of employment, especially uh, youth employment. She leads the research, knowledge and insights uh, department, focusing on the impact of Harambe's capabilities to change the system and contribute to solutions for the African continent. And we're also joined by Khomuto Mufomadi. She's a lawyer, a former lecturer at the University of Johannesburg, specializing in labor law, and is now the head of industrial and employee relations for BMW South Africa. This podcast is brought to you by the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation and Bubblegum Club. However, the opinions and views expressed by the speakers do not necessarily reflect those of these organizations. Welcome, Shami, and welcome, Khomutso. I guess um, my first question to you is, how do you arrive to this conversation? I arrive curious and eager to learn more about what's happening, you know, uh, in the world of work. Uh, how are you arriving? Thanks, Flando. I'll start. And thank you so much for that intro um, and this opportunity. I... I'm certainly honored and, and uh, privileged to do this work. Um, I arrive at this conversation incredibly humbled and grateful. You mentioned Harambe is doing great work. I think I'm particularly grateful to be part of this organization who I believe is supporting addressing the challenge of youth unemployment, but not importantly, not seeing um, our young people in Africa as um, a, a burden, but as an incredible source of potential, source of opportunity for not just for the African continent, but for the rest of the world, I get the immense privilege to work alongside of and serve young people every day. So how I'm arriving to this is incredibly grateful for that. Thank you so much, Shami. Homutso, how are you doing? Thanks so much, Luanda, for, for this opportunity. And hi to Shami, and thanks for this conversation. I think uh, I always really look forward to talking about the world of work. You know, work is really central. Well, today, work is really central to human dignity. Uh, particularly in South Africa. So I think it's a critical area of engagement and discussion. 
I also think not, a, not enough emphasis is put on the significance of learning and understanding labor law, for example, and principles around labor law until you're sort of in trouble. So I'm always, I'm always ready to engage and share and learn more um, about the world of work, especially from an international perspective. So I think I arrive at this conversation enthusiastic, um, excited to engage, excited to learn more. Uh, that is the perfect note to start. And I am also grateful that our audience gets to have the benefit of your insights. I just introduced the both of you, right? And I introduced you by describing your roles. And I often say that um, law may be the tool of uh, uh, how I want to contribute to the world, but it's not my motivation. My motivation is to be part of nation building because I grew up seeing and I came of age during a time when South Africa as a nation was being rebuilt or built from scratch, or you know, we were attempting certainly to build it from scratch. So one of the things that I, I want you to do is also just to introduce yourselves. I know that the tool you know, uh, of your of your work is um, the roles that I've just described. But what is the motivation behind what you do? Shami, I know that you picked up on it by saying that, uh, you know, you don't just want to see the youth on the continent as a burden, but as a source of potential. But maybe you could expand on what brought you to this work and how you hope to contribute to this work. Sure. Thanks, Lando. And firstly, I'm immensely inspired by the work you do. But let me let me start by contextualizing. I am I'm a sort of an incredibly privileged person. Have had the opportunity to live and work in multiple countries and multiple continents across the world. I was born in India, grew up in Nigeria, uh, finished schooling, went to the U.S. on a scholarship. I um, got immense opportunities, lived in South Africa, and now live and work in Kenya and across the continent. I, I basically am, am incredibly lucky um, and feel privileged to have the opportunities I've had. It is by no means due to my um, competence alone. It is an accident of birth. And so for me, I firmly believe that talent is universal, opportunity is not. I came across so many opportunities by accident, have been able to leverage those and, and push forward. But in looking back, um, I realized, and you know, particularly on the African continent, working with young people, I'm so impressed by how much young people are able to do despite the circumstances they're dealt. And the systems that they live and work in are so unfair to them. And I think that for me, what brings me to this work is that source of um, almost that sense of injustice that I got lucky and I'm you know, one amongst very few but so many people, if they had a little bit of opportunity, a little bit of potential, if doors could be opened, if systems could be fixed, um, they could have so many more opportunities as well. And we all stand to benefit from this inclusion. So that's what drives me. Um, and as I said, you know, for me, thinking of young people as um, really, I mean, you know, the source of potential, many of you may have seen, there was a New York Times headline or article quite recently that the world is becoming more African. And it filled me with great pride because it's, the article, I think, did justice in some ways because it usually we describe the this this issue as the youth bulge, not enough jobs, which are all true. But what was important for me with this article was it was talking about Africa as a source of innovation, a source of energy, a source of creativity, and that's what I truly believe, and that's what drives me to do the work I do every day, supporting and serving the young people. Um, so for me, even in my role, I get to you know make magic with, with the young people that we serve, but importantly, help shift the systems that are inherently unjust by design. 
And so for me, that injustice is what kind of drives me every day. And I'm really lucky to do it alongside of the people that I work with. Thank you, Shami. And, and Hamuto, I know that you studied law. You could have easily been, you know, a purely corporate lawyer, could have done banking and finance. You could have done insurance, law. What led you to labor law? What do you hope to do with this tool? Thanks. Thanks, Lando. I think I'm, I'm similar to you in the sense that I'm very much driven by service to my country, to the people of this country. I grew up in exile. My parents were in exile. And, uh, you know, I spent the first 11 years of my life uh, in the U.S. And then we came back in the 90s, like everyone. And, um, you know, my dad then joined the public service. He was in the Defense Force until his retirement. And I still remember him in his retirement speech saying he dedicated his life to service. And I've never forgotten that. I was, I was quite, I was like in high school, obviously, somewhere there. But I've never forgotten him saying that and realizing in that moment that I too wanted to dedicate my life to service on some level, on every level, at least part of my day needs to be dedicated to serving the people of this country and our goals and our focuses and, and, and what we're hoping to achieve. So I'm deeply dedicated to making this place better and ha- facilitating others to make this place better. Um, yeah, I'm a little bit of a corporate lawyer now, <laughs> but labor law, um, <laughs> labor law, um, I think is a, is, is a really exciting tool. As I mentioned earlier, so much is wrapped up in work in relation to dignity, um, especially for our people, um, because of the socioeconomic situation, because so many of our people are living in poverty, um, really the ability to provide for one's family is central. To, to to one's understanding and 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 one's one and one's understanding of oneself and one's dignity, one's ability to contribute to society is so significant um, for one's sense of self. So I think me uh, entering labor law and growing to love labor law over the last ten years has been about facilitating that and facilitating fair labor practice. I mean, as much as we know, um, people are really, truly desperate for work, uh, what comes with that desperation is exploitation. So central central to my work is to try and uh, educate and eradicate that exploitation as much as, you know, I can, I can contribute towards that exercise. Um, really, those are the things that drive me. Um, I think what you've both said really uh, deeply resonates with me, and I just want to link it to the reason we're having, uh, the big reason that we're having this conversation is understanding human rights, their nature, and what's possible. And as you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, is at the center of this podcast. Uh, It was adopted 75 years ago, and it makes a provision um, in terms of, you know, uh, the human right to work. Uh, that provision is Article 23, and I want to read it. And I want to get your immediate, from both of you, I want to get your immediate response as you hear these words, right? Um, so 75 years ago, this is what was said about the right to work under eight, Article 23 of the UDHR. It says, everyone has the right to work, to free choice of employment, to just and favorable conditions of work and to protection against unemployment. What immediately comes up for you as you hear that declaration? I think um, fair labor practice. I think those are the, the, the first words that sort of come to mind. 
that really the content of that right is fair labor practice because it encompasses so many things. And I think as we'll talk about it, uh, you know, as we go along, um, South Africa's efforts to, to try and ensure fair labor practice for all the people living in this country, not just for South Africans, that's also very important, for all of the people living in this country, um, you know, what is our ability to provide for fair labor practice? Because realistically speaking, I think the right to work is not easily realized for every single person living within the borders of this country. But in every country, I think it's a I think it's a big challenge. Can I ask you, Khamutu, just as a follow up, um, mm. what does work mean to you personally? You know, earlier on, you were talking about dignity and being able to provide for one's family. I talked about, you know, being able to self-actualize in the world, to contribute one's talents and strengths and all of that. Is there another sort of facet for you in terms of the role that work uh, plays in your life? I think it, um, you know, as a woman, we have these, you know, these roles that are imposed on us as women, wife, mother, daughter. um, And those are sort of seen to be our sort of biological functions. You come out of the womb and you are those things. And I think what is great about work is being able to be so much more beyond that, beyond what biologically people may perceive me to be. So much more beyond that and to self-actualize completely and to be my full self. I mean, you know, I remember when I when I got married, I said to my husband, "Look, I'm tired of working. I'd, I'd like to I'd like to stay home." And he said, "He said I don't think you'll be who you are. You certainly won't be who I married if you don't work." And I that really really made me reflect on how important and significant my work life is to me, and how much power and freedom. And energy it gives me to be able to do the things that I do every day. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a big part of our identities, I guess. And Shami, um, when you hear the wording of Article Twenty Three, you know everyone has the right to work, free choice of employment, just and favorable favorable conditions of work, and protection against employment. What do you want to highlight there? What jumps out at you? What's your immediate thought? Yeah. So, firstly, I think it's a noble and important. Um, ambition. But I just feel there are so many people who are denied that, right? And I think um, not because they don't want to, they're constrained by so many factors. And um, for me, what comes out um, in terms of the right to work and protection against unemployment, it's sometimes beyond individual agency and individual control. And I think that's something that we in this world, sometimes we just look over. We, We often look at the class of the unemployed as people who are lazy or entitled or have, you know, benefits that uh, come from um, institutions like the state. And I think for me, that's a real misconception because actually everyone wants to work. And, and I loved your definition at the start of the podcast, right, about achieving your fullest potential, uh, contributing your talents to the world. I've not met a single person in the world who hasn't wanted to do that. Um, there are times in which you uh, there are ebbs and flows. I mean, I love also what you said about wanting to step back. And sometimes you do want to step back, um, whether it is for taking care of, of um, your loved ones or if it is also just to pursue leisure and rest. So for me, I feel um, my immediate reaction is I think it is important. I, that's something I back with my whole heart and my work. I find it many people are super constrained by circumstance to do it. 
But I also think we're, and Komoto, you, you hit the nail on the head when also in terms of if you introduce gender. Um, I personally think that unpaid care work, for example, is a significant um, issue in the world that's un, undervalued, under-recognized. Um, and we actually are all going to need caregiving. I, I know that uh, the former first lady of the U.S., Rosalind Carter, passed away this week. Um, one of my favorite, favorite quotes of hers is that there are only four kinds of people in the world, those who need caregiving now, those who were caregivers in the past, those who will be caregivers in the future, and those who um, receive caregiving. And so for me, I feel like care work is completely unrecognized in this world of work. And it's a very sort of core identity to so many of us, particularly women. Um, and I think that when I think of work, what work means to me, it is definitely something that is a sense of fulfillment, how I can contribute in the world. But I do think that society and our sort of capitalist world doesn't recognize all kinds of work equally. And I do think that's one of the most important issues we need to address. Um, and I also mentioned uh, to Humoto's earlier point, work and leisure and rest, I think, have to have an important um, dialogue um, because I think a lot of even the definition of the the article it was set up I think in the time of war you know just post World War um, people were thinking of sort of a very capitalist typical industrial setup of a nine to five job you get a paycheck and you come home and usually someone else is taking care of the house and home we don't live in that kind of world anymore so how do we think of work in this context now? Um, and how do we also think of work and its relationship to, to rest and leisure? And how do we think of work that is valued and seen and recognized and work that isn't? Um, so those are sort of things that come to mind with both the, the declaration, but also the definition of work. And I must say, I'm not fully, I don't have a neat answer to any of these, but um, that's what sort of makes me think about how we should structure work and, and protect work and make it dignified. Well, thanks for that, because you've given me a bridge to uh, uh, my next point that I'd love to unpack with you. You know, this idea that since the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, there have been a number of cultural shifts, you know, impacting the right to work, you know, whether it's technology, uh, whether it's just significant historical shifts, like, you know, the end of the Cold War, in our case, uh, the fall of the apartheid regime, uh, and in many parts of the world recently, you know, there's, there's well, we've all been affected by a, another sort of uh, a major significant world event, and that is the COVID-19 pandemic, which I think has really changed uh, the landscape when it comes to the right to work. We saw millions of people lose their jobs, you know, others had to rapidly adjust to working from home as offices closed down. You know, we've had many other workers who were deemed essential and had to continue working through, you know, uh, unprecedented uh, conditions and hospitals and in grocery stores. And we had many who were working from home, also juggling what you were talking about earlier, Shami, unpaid care work. And some people had to quit their they, they main jobs because of the unpaid uh, care work that they had to undertake because of COVID-19. And uh, others questioned the virtue of work altogether and the life-threatening circumstances that, um, you know, uh, were highlighted by this pandemic that, you know, uh, a lot of us were very uh, uh, affected by, whether it's losing loved ones, whether we ourselves got sick. 
So I just wanted to 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 unpack that with you, Sham, in terms of uh, the fallout of COVID nineteen and the trends that you've seen. I know that you know I read in a report that um, you know the official labor uh, data shows that there were about two point two million fewer employed people in the second quarter of 2020 relative to the first quarter. And that actually erased 10 years of job growth in our economy. But there's been a measure of recovery. We've had job losses uh, concentrated amongst people who are already quite vulnerable. So I just wanted to to unpack with you what you've seen in the aftermath of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. How is the landscape doing or looking like? And um, what is Harambe specifically doing to address some of these um, trends that you are seeing? Sure, Rwanda. I mean, that stat that you read, 2.2 million job losses, it's, it's a number that sat with us in the COVID period. And I think COVID was a stark realization of so many different things that were already true and exacerbated existing inequalities. Um, in that 2.2 million, which I think, you know, the number you're quoting is from the National Income Dynamics Study, what we found in Harambe's own research and also the NIDS research, um, two-thirds or more of those job losses were uh, experienced by young women in particular. Um, and, and, and it's interesting because young women were the least protected, the most exposed, and the most vulnerable and in, unable to come back um, from these job losses. Um, and it affected men as well, and I'll talk about that um, as well. But we found that two—I mean, two-thirds of that 2.2 million were young women, and it was because they were in frontline jobs or in jobs that were incredibly affected by the pandemic. Um, a lot of them were informal workers, and therefore couldn't benefit from social security measures like um, either TERS or UIF benefits, and had childcare um, constraints when when schools were closed. So our young women um, during COVID were incredibly affected. Um, and overall, if you look at the labor market trends in South Africa from 2008 to now, um, unfortunately, young people's um, job prospects have been declining. We've only barely, barely come back to sort of pre-COVID levels on some dimensions, but not all. Um, and again, women's numbers are not uh, comparable to young men's. And um, the sad truth of it is that even if our economy has slightly recovered, it hasn't recovered in favor of young young people at all. And young people remain um, the key people sort of bearing the brunt of this um, economic shock, both of COVID as well as the 2008 recession. Um, and another alarming stat, which is something that we keep sort of close to heart at Harambe, is we have 8.7 million young people who are not in education, employment and training. That number should really shock everyone. It is something that if we aren't, you know, it's a, it's a drum we beat consistently. It's a crisis. Um, it's the size of the country of Austria, just for context. And that is an entire country um, of unemployed youth. And when you engage with young people, they want to work. Ask any young person and they tell you. I think it's two thirds um, of this number um, surveyed a couple of years ago said, given a chance, they would absolutely take any job if they were given an opportunity. And most of these young people, by the way, are rarely idle. So this is the other thing, work um, that is compensated, work that is seen, work that is valued versus the fact that young people are um, not idle, they're active, and yet they are not being compensated or having that seen as translating to productive gains is a key issue. So at Harambe, we believe, we believe in the concept of pathway management. We know that a young person's um, journey in the economy is 
um, no longer linear. That that is for a bygone era. You go to school, you get a job, degree, you get a job, and you stay in that. Um, it doesn't apply, and it definitely doesn't apply for a young person in today's economy. So we have to suit sort of our um, interventions to that reality and getting them to help. Pathway management is the concept of enabling a young person to get into and stay in the labor market with as smooth and as barrier-free a process as possible. Um, Young people spend on average 700 to 1,000 rand per month on even just looking for work. That's unconscionable. So our our, uh, platform, SA Youth, which Harambe powers, is now, it's data-free, it's free of cost, and our um, incredible group of young people, we have about 100 or so um, contact center guides who offer toll-free assistance um, to young unemployed work seekers to get their profiles, their CVs, and importantly, match them to jobs. Um, we have about 3.7 million young people on our database. We've placed more than 1 million opportunities to for young people over the years. But for us, we know that that's not nearly enough. And um I mean, I'll stop there. But yes, it's definitely something that um, keeps us up at night. And um, it's unfortunate that the the least, uh, the most vulnerable in our society is unfortunately the most exposed. I mean, I think many of us share that sentiment, whether it's the listeners, whether it's me and Khamuta, you know, in this conversation with you, we know people who are in that situation. We have family members, we have friends, you know, who are afflicted by this. And maybe to take a step back, can you just uh, um, unpack what is Harambe, you know, for those who don't know? Sure. Harambe is um, a youth employment accelerator. We are a social enterprise. We partner with government and employers and importantly, young people um, in civil society to address this complex challenge. We um, have many offerings, but one of our key offerings is that of the National Pathway Manager. We power a platform called SAU. It's a Mobi site, but also is multi-channel. It's a free of cost um, platform where young people can put up their profile, get advice um, on the phone, um, and importantly, get access to jobs. We work with employers to put opportunities on this site. Um, and we work with extraordinary employers um, over the years, especially in financial services, retail, global business services, um, and also with the government. So we worked with the Department of Basic Education to put jobs on a, our site. We placed um, all four cohorts and hopefully the fifth cohort of the teaching assistant program in 26,000 schools in the country. Um, and we work with the government to also figure out what are the new jobs that need to be created for young people, but importantly, new jobs that can accommodate young people and can do so inclusively. Um, so there isn't sort of, there aren't extra barriers like um, unnecessary qualifications and lengthy and expensive skilling. Um, so yeah, this is, it's, it's about serving young people and serving um, work opportunities in, in demand for the country in, in terms of new jobs. And that's exactly why I say Harambe is doing the Lord's work. Um, I just want to stick with you a little bit, uh, Shami, regarding this youth unemployment issue, because I know it didn't just come about because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So perhaps I know you've alluded to other factors. Um, can you just you know, say a little bit more about how we got here to these really astronomical numbers of youth unemployment. What are the contributing factors and why does it seem like it's not getting any better? Yeah, I mean, Lando, it's it's a long, complicated story, um, but definitely the roots are in our um, historical inequality due to apartheid and um, the education system as well. Um, spatial exclusion is a key part of it. Um, 
but all of it comes to play. And our young population has been growing, but our opportunities have not. And our opportunities have also been, um, you know, focused and concentrated in, a, in, in the hands of a few. So um, the way our country and, and um, sort of our geography has been set up favors people closest to town to 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 cities not in the rural areas and if you look at employment rates um by municipality it's it's really stark um so spatial exclusion is a big one young people face so many barriers even looking for work i mentioned they pay so much money to to look for work um they try to even um sometimes they're forced to do um to make to pay people for finding work which um is um, young people are faced with so many scams and um, that unfortunately is still part of the, the equation. Um, there, there's also huge barriers in the form of um, exclusionary hiring practices. So um, both in the forms of whether or not you have the right degree, but many entry-level jobs don't require degrees. Sometimes entry-level jobs are, are advertised asking for five years experience, which um, Harambe works with employer, um, employers to advocate for dropping unnecessary qualifications. Um, a lot of our partnerships with our incredibly like-minded clients, for example, showcase that if you hire right for the right skills, not qualifications alone, then you have a huge return on investment. And in some cases, you're putting up unnecessary barriers to um, exclude potential. Um, and so we, we try and sort of promote inclusive hiring. Um, but we do have um, a young population that unfortunately is bearing the brunt of an education system that has not served them. And so the skilling system and the employer system, unfortunately, has to compensate for that for that failure. Um, but I'd say so. Yeah. So there's a whole, so many reasons for this. There's um, spatial exclusion, historical exclusion, um, barriers that young people face every day, exclusionary hiring practices, which I'm sure Komoso can weighing on from a labor law perspective as well. And then you add to that um, the gender dimension to it, it's, it's even worse. So there's so many sort of stereotypes in terms of what young women can do or not. And so there you have it. It's, 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 a, it's a really recipe for disaster. But what I think the promise underlying all of that is that we can shift this trend. We have proof points at Harambe showing that this can be shifted, but um, the situation as it stands right now is pretty bleak. That's encouraging to hear, Shami. And and before we get to, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, you said that this is a recipe for disaster. I just want you to also set out in plain terms, what is at stake here if we don't get this right? I mean, if you looked at Tunisia's official unemployment rate before the Arab Spring, it was less than, um, the youth unemployment rate was less than, less than 30%. Um, our youth unemployment rate expanded is over 60%. So for me, that's, it should really have everyone um, doing their best because the fact that we haven't had a crisis, a revolution, really, um, our young people, I would say, are surprisingly optimistic and surprisingly um, not revolting the streets. For me, this is injustice. This is a crime against our young people. I, I feel like the... Uh, <laughs> In some ways, um, our generation, and I'll include myself in this, I'm well over the age of youth, um, have, have not been fair. And we, are, we need to make sure that we make amends. And so for me, the, what the price to pay is a disengaged, um, unproductive youth population that will go to waste. We, we stand to lose a generation of hopeful young people. And for me, this is the driver of this conversation and of this podcast, you know, emphasizing on 
the impact of this uh, on humanity and just taking it beyond just politics, right? Uh, Hamuta, I'd like to bring you in here because Shami alluded to uh, uh, the roots of this current uh, um, disaster that we're facing regarding youth unemployment to apartheid. And as we know, you know, apartheid relied on cheap black labor, migrant labor to build its economy you know, exploitation was at the very heart uh, of apartheid. It was actually sanctioned by law. You know, you had indecent or inhumane wages. You had racial segregation in the workforce. You had job reservations, you know, the reservation of skilled work for white people and unskilled and semi-skilled work for black laborers and for women. It's a whole uh, schema of things. And I just want to get your sense of where we come from and what we've done to kind of change uh, uh, these patterns that we've inherited from apartheid and how are we doing when you look at how we're trying to transform the world of work? You know, uh, Shami excluded, I mean, uh, uh, alluded to the exclusionary labor practices that still continue today. Why are they still continuing today if we have the constitution that we have and the labor laws that we have? There's a lot of things at play. First of all, uh, the patterns and norms that were created during apartheid have definitely not gone anywhere, if you ask me. We, we have legislated quite well. I think our uh, employment legislation suite is, is good. The new Employment Equity Amendment Acts um, uh, are, are actually on paper quite sufficient in terms of transformation. The problem is implementation. You know, as it stands, more than 70% of top management in South African private sector is still white male. This is in 2023. So, so the problem really is implementation. The private sector is playing somewhat of a role in terms of employing uh, people at entry level. But where do the entry level, where does the entry level go? Um, so I think that's another problem. You're talking about retention. You're talking about growth and development in organizations. If you're talking about true transformation, we, we, we need to talk about retention within organizations. We need to talk about true development within organizations, because if 10 years from now, the same people who've come in at entry level have not progressed significantly within an organization, this is not true transformation, especially from an economic perspective. Um, you know, we, we, we are talking about, uh, you know, coming to a point where our society is much more equal. But what does it mean if um, black people are still remaining in sort of entry-level positions in corporate entities, can only grow within government, um, which, again, cannot accommodate the entire unemployment crisis? You know, when we talk about transformation, you know, I don't want to take for granted that our listeners know what we're talking about. But basically, you know, having uh, transitioned from an apartheid regime of inequality, injustice, and indignity and oppression, um, the imperative of our constitution is to transform our society and, more importantly, transform the material conditions of people's lives. And Homozo, you just spoke about, you know, what um, you, you mentioned the term "true transformation," uh, and I just want to get a sense from you: what does true transformation in the workplace look like? I think that a workplace needs to reflect, uh, at least broadly, the demographics of the country. If black people are the majority of people in this country, organizations should be employing majority black people. But you seem to have a, a 
you know, a, 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 a very deliberate attempt to avoid that situation. And another challenge that we have in this regard is the lack of labor inspectors from the coming from the Department of Labor able to go into workplaces and inspect are employment equity targets being met or is there an attempt to meet employment equity targets? So capacity is also a huge challenge. And I think it's particularly the private sector is fully aware of this. Um, they're fully aware that it's not going to be easy to get a labor inspector into their office um, to actually take a look. What is your employment equity committee doing? What are your employment equity challenges? What are the barriers to entry that you can remove? So I think they're fully aware of it. I think they take advantage of it in a lot of private entities. And I can't speak for all of them. I think some companies are doing well. Some companies are making genuine strides. But a huge uh, you know, cohort of private entities are deliberately trying to avoid transformation. And just to stick uh, uh, to that theme, you wrote a paper on um, racism in the workplace. And I just wanted you to share a few nuggets of, you know, a, a few pointers from that paper. What were you looking at and um, what solutions did you propose in that paper? So the paper focused predominantly on microaggressions in the workplace. Uh, I think what, what you'll realize or what most of us will realize is that you don't get a lot of people in your workplace calling people the K-word or being sort of blatantly, obviously racist or saying obviously racist things. But instead, racism has become more insidious, more secretive. It has pulled itself into the background and it has changed its form. So when we talk about things like barriers to entry, deliberately avoiding transformation, but also the subtle slights, comments, messaging, gestures that people of color tend to experience within workplaces, many workplaces are what racism starts to look like today. For the most part, those are the kinds of things that you will see in terms of racism um, in the workplace. You might not hear someone saying a blatantly racist thing, but they will make sort of comments, they will make these slights, these utterances, there will be gestures, eye-rolling in meetings. Those are the kinds of ways that racism manifests in the workplace today. Now, of course, we do have a code of good practice against harassment, and that code of good practice does address, uh, you know, from a legislative perspective, issues around microaggressions that I'm speaking about now. And it is a very good code, but in practice, it's very difficult to prove that those types of things actually are, are racism manifesting in a particular environment or context. As much as we want to legislate against racist microaggressions, I would argue that the best approach is to actually deal with people's biases at the root, whether that is through training, through education, through engaging from that perspective as opposed to a disciplinary perspective. I think that is probably the best approach to deal with uh, uh, reducing or limiting people's racist microaggressions, help them to understand where they are coming from, help them to understand what is the problem with engaging with individuals in this way. Shami, I'd, I'd like to get back to something that you mentioned earlier on, which is something that I'm really, really seized with. Like I, I'm paying so much attention and I think I'm thinking about it in a way that I hadn't thought about it before because I just took it as a part of life. And that's unpaid care work. You know, um, I'd love for you to kind of define what that is, why it's gaining such prominence right now and uh, you alluded to how it is um, resulting in such unequal outcomes, especially for women. 
how we are addressing this and um, yeah, what is the way forward on unpaid care work? Because I think it's very hard to imagine a world where, you know, none of us um, have to participate in that. As you said, like the, the quote that you, you shared earlier by the late uh, Rosalind Carter is that all of us will either have to give care or receive care. So uh, how is this affecting our economy Uh, Why is it prominent now? And um, what are we trying to do around uh, this theme of unpaid care work to produce more equal outcomes, especially for women? This is a subject that's very, very close to my heart, actually. I just released a TED Talk on that a few weeks ago, Um, not least because I've personally experienced the need for this. Well, firstly, just going back to your comment on COVID, right? Because schools were closed in many places, we were confronted with the reality that actually work as we know it in the external sense and care work um, can often be at odds. Young people showed up in our Zoom screens and we realized that we couldn't do, you know, both the work that we typically do for those of us that were lucky enough to be in hybrid and online circumstances and give the care to our loved ones, both young and old. Um, So I think that was a bit of a wake-up call and people started um, realizing how important care work is and how difficult it is to do Uh, both the work that's recognized externally and the work of the home. And for decades, I think care work has been um, unseen and unrecognized primarily because it's it's hinged on inequality, unequal um, structures, both gender and very importantly, often race. Um, If you see sort of domestic care work that's done globally, I think it's over 13 billion hours, um, you know, that are done (laughs) mostly by people um, of color, women of color, and I would say, especially in the African continent, black women, um, which I think Komoto was alluding to some of this in terms of um, labor practices, etc. But this shows up in how we think of um, and value certain groups of people. And I think she was alluding to that in terms of whether it's overt racism or not. Uh, but when you, for decades, centuries really, take advantage of a certain group of people, your presumption is Um, that you can continue to do so. Um, And so for me, unpaid care work is a perfect symbol of this. I think all of us at some point have had, um, you know, either had to give care or receive care. Um, And um, this is becoming more and more um, central because of, obviously, of COVID pandemic, but also about sort of, I think, the world in which domestic care work has risen to priority because of so many dual income homes, where even women who are in the external workforce are having to deal with um, um, housework and either outsourcing it in some cases where you have the luxury or trying to juggle and do it all. Um, and then lastly, I would say it's because we are um, aging as a population. In as much as Africa is young, the rest of the world is getting older and, um, and much more frail and we are living longer. So we are needing to take care of our elderly. Um, and this is deeply personal to me as well. Um, I took care of my dad just before he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and my mom, until quite recently, took care of my ailing grandmother. And these are, you know, we have the luxury and privilege of living slightly longer lives. And it's really important for us to think of that caregiving as a, a, a duty and a privilege. But it needs to be recognized. It needs to be named. The people who do the work need to be rewarded and recognized. And so there's a whole host of conversations that need to be happening in this space. For me, I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, One last thing I'll say in that space, I firmly believe that this space is going to call for innovation um, as much as any other space. So we talk about um, green, we talk about digital as a source of frontier jobs. 
I think care jobs are going to be jobs of the future that can be done by humans because we are so good at that. We are good at taking care of each other. Um, and I think it is important for us to see not only the need to recognize reward um, and redistribute the care burden, but importantly, to see it as a source of innovation and possibility of jobs as well in the future. What I love about what you've just said, Sham, is the idea of uh, care work being retained by human beings because we're so good at it. It takes me to the next theme that I want to explore around, you know, there's a cultural shift that's happening around the world of work because of AI, artificial intelligence. And um, I was at a conference last week where there was a mix of AI is taking our jobs. And this conference was for creatives. Um, and there was also a sentiment that it's creating new jobs. And I just want to get a sense of what impact have you seen AI have on employment, Homuta, whether it's in your particular uh, workplace where, you know, maybe AI has taken over certain functions or whether it's created needs uh, for new jobs. And Shami, what are the trends around AI? Is it something we should be uh, uh, grateful for and excited about, or should we be scared? So um, in my current environment, there's quite a commitment to retain jobs. We have collective agreements, um, sectoral collective agreements um, to this end to, to try and retain a certain number of jobs. Um, uh, because yes, of course, there is that risk that AI will, will get to a point where it starts to reduce our, our, uh, the numbers of employees that we actually hire. And I think that's quite, it's becoming quite a norm in many sectors. Go to your local McDonald's and you'll see how the number of staff have actually reduced in terms of particularly till operators because they are being replaced by machines. Um, so it's a huge risk to, to unemployment. And at the same time, we, we cannot stop the tide. I mean, if South Africa wants to complete globally, we're going to have to have these honest and open conversations about how we work. And, and Shami, um, what trends are you seeing on your side? You know, is this something that uh, Harambe is excited about or are there some concerns? Yeah, I want to build on what Homotsa said. Um, this is a trend that's coming, whether we like it or not. We have to be prepared for it. That said, I just want to maybe call out a few things. One, um, we tend to get kind of like we, we over-exaggerate the impact of technology with every wave. We've done so. And yes, this wave is perhaps unlike any other, um, et cetera, and is doing, and I think it's, it's the heightened <laughs> sensationalism is more because it's threatening the former very, very elite white collar work um, as opposed to other kinds of blue collar work, which I think um, people in the past were like, oh, no, no, you know, technology is good. But now when the when it comes for the lawyers jobs or um, people are a little bit more worried, maybe that's why you're seeing the hype. But I, I mean, from Harami's perspective, I think we have seen the benefits of being using AI to our advantage. And I'll give you a couple of examples. We think that AI can be, can serve us incredibly well if we design it intentionally and inclusively. So Harambe, as I mentioned, we a platform, we service nearly 4 million work seekers through the contact center calls, um, but we also have a chatbot. Um, we recently put in um, a few AI, sort of generative technology, generative AI technology enabled tools um, to support our young work seekers, because in our world, 
Unemployment does not keep office hours. We have to service our young people at all hours. Um, one of our chatbot tools, um, firstly, was helped was designed by our contact center guides. Um, so they had a hand in designing what the tool would look like to to support young people. Um, there's a specific chatbot called Coach Me, uh, designed by my colleague Brent Davidoff. Um, and he um, specifically helped build almost a personal mastery tool that would help young people feel a bit more hopeful and optimistic and help set goals, et cetera. And it's entirely AI driven. Um, and another feature of other aspects of some of our chatbots have enabled our contact center guides, to, it, it's freed them from doing some easy work that can be troubleshooted by an AI, freeing them up to do more complex work instead. So all, all this is to say that AI is, it can be as much a threat as we design it to be. And I think for us, we, we, we firmly believe that, you know, uh, we're going to have to have a part in designing this tool, this set of tools, as inclusively as we have the previous set of tools. Um, and I think for me, as much as um, we all, you know, benefit from certain aspects of AI, human contact is going to be undeniably important for our survival as a species. So I would I would take this sort of sensationalist AI hype, especially now this week, uh, with what's going on with um, open AI, et cetera, with a bit of a grain of salt, because as with every technology, it's how we use it, it's how we deploy it, it's how we regulate it, but also how we make sure that it is inclusive by design. I completely show, share those sentiments, Shami. And um, before we we wrap up, Khomut, I want to go back to you. You know, um, last month there was a, a major uh, legal development, changing somewhat our landscape when it comes to our right to work, especially uh, when it comes to the gender inequality that's embedded in this right to work. And that is the judgment that... Uh, has, I think, radically changed things when it comes to maternity and paternity leave, and I think has also implications for unpaid care work. I think you know what I'm talking about. I'd love for you to just uh, share a few thoughts on that. I'd be happy to unpack this because I've been thinking about this judgment a lot. So in essence, um, the judgment grants uh, longer, well, basically shared parental leave. So it basically outlines that parents, let's say, uh, uh, you know, a husband and a wife or, or, you know, partners will then share four months maternity leave. Um, and this will also be extended. Um, prior to this, it was women who had four months maternity leave access and fathers had t- uh, uh, 10 days paternity leave access. Now the judgment in essence says that Mothers and fathers must share the four months parental leave. Now, as much as a lot of people have said that this judgment is really progressive, and I agree that fathers should have longer parental leave, my biggest problem with the judgment is that it deprives women of the leave. (laughs) So to extend parental leave to men, but to do so by creating a deprivation uh, for mothers, to me, doesn't make any sense. Um, I, you know, there are reasons, biological, physiological reasons that women take this particular period of time off of work. I think it's awesome for men to have the same amount of time off of work, but the idea that for men to have equal rights in this regard, you must deprive women doesn't make any sense to me. 
So that's sort of my high level view. I, I don't think and I hope the Constitutional Court does not uphold this judgment in its current form. Um, I do think, as I said, it would be best to extend the period of time for both parents as opposed to making them split this period of time. Well, I guess, uh, um, you know, how you've laid out this judgment is kind of, you know, um, symbolic of um, the patterns that we see in the right to work, that we make so much progress only to take steps back, you know, Um it feels like in so many ways we're innovating, we're moving forward, we are solving problems, and then something like a COVID-19 pandemic can undo so much of the gains, or you feel like a legal judgment has, uh, um, you know, revolutionized a, a particular theme, and then you have someone like Khomuzo, uh tell us that uh, it may be good, but it has some issues. So just to wrap up, you know, I, I want to thank you both for your insights on the right to work. But I also know that as human beings, there are other human rights that you care about. And my final question to the both of you is, what other right would you like to see become real beyond just a declaration and why? Yeah, I mean, I had to think about this one. Um Luando, I think for me, I would say social security. I think work and social security are closely intertwined, but they aren't often um, guaranteed. So for me, um, having some sense of, yeah, decent living and, and a guarantee around that, especially in the future, we may not be able to all work at the same level, etc. There could be a need for universal basic income, etc., to protect us from um from poverty and all sorts of kind of social ills. So I would say social security for me is really critical. Um, obviously, the, every single other right is very important, um, but I would say this one is top of mind. I think on my side, uh, uh, the right to access to information very broadly, but quite specifically the internet. Um, and I know that that sounds, you know, kind of futuristic, but I think that a huge number of our people are left behind because of lack of access to information, lack of access to to online information that we take for granted every single day. I mean, if you look at the work of Harambe, if you look at organizations like Enke, I mean, accessing those organizations, access, accessing those organizations, accessing information, accessing information about work, around your other rights. Often, uh, the easiest way to do this is through the internet, which most of us have taken for granted. Um, and I think that uh, for me, it would open up a lot of doors in relation to all other rights. Well, we've come to the end of our time together. Um, we've touched on everything from youth unemployment, unpaid care work, AI, maternity and paternity leave. I hope this conversation was as insightful to you, the listener, as it was to me. I want to thank both of my guests, Homuta and Shami, for giving so generously of their time uh, and for making this episode so rich. That's the end. So see you next time. Thank you very much.